Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Romer, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Uh, thank you, Sam. How are you? Um, glad to be here. Uh, really excited to talk a little bit more about uh, AI with you. And um, I'm really a listener of your show in the past, and I really enjoy them. So looking forward to this. Awesome. That's great to hear. And I am doing great. And uh, I'm excited to dig into our conversation, which as a listener, you know that I'll start by asking you how you got into artificial intelligence. Tell us a little bit about your background. Okay, yes. Yeah, so I guess uh, um, my background uh, as an undergraduate student is on uh, um, something that uh, is called informatics or informatics engineering. And this is something, a term that is not used here in the States because I study in Venezuela for my uh, undergrad. And uh, that's kind of like a combination of math, computer science, and, and stats or operations research. And, you know, Looking back uh, 20 years ago, this is exactly what you need uh, to get into uh, uh, machine learning, right? So I was really interested in these topics uh, from very long ago. And uh, once I got into graduate school, I tried to explore those more and more. First, uh, studying uh, computer vision, which was uh, kind of like my first subject area uh, in graduate school. And then realizing that, um, you know, you could do a lot more in computer vision uh, with the right sort of machine intelligence. Right? And that got me more and more interested in, uh, in AI. For example, I was looking at things like, um, how do you recover the 3D structure of an object? And of course, the first thing you do in computer vision is you go into the 3D geometry and, you know, all of these things related to, you know, epipolar geometry or, or recovering the camera parameters. But then I tried to approach the same type of problems using uh, machine learning and it, it just felt much more natural to me. And um, then I kept going in that direction and um, exploring a little bit more of, uh, you know, in-depth in machine learning, uh, did a couple of postdocs in uh, in the area one in um what i call image analysis and another one more related to uh, how we scale inference in systems that are so large or so complicated that you cannot really do exact inference but you have to go into approximate inference so so the area is really called uh, um, approximate inference in graphical models so you know that area really reinforced uh, more and more, you know, what I really wanted to do in machine learning, which is to deal with these very large problems, large systems. And even if you cannot uh, come up with a exact solution to all of these problems, to come up with a good approximations. So after that, I went and um, study, uh, went into uh, industry, and uh, I started working in the area of healthcare. So, which it's a great area. Uh, it's a very, very meaningful area, which really needs, uh, you, you see a lot of applications uh, of artificial intelligence in this area. I spent about five or six years um, in the area of healthcare. And then I moved uh, to Silicon Valley. And right now I am here at LinkedIn. I think uh, I'm very happy. And I think um, I have been lucky to work on uh, two areas that I consider that are pretty useful 
uh, in general for the uh, socially. One is healthcare and the other one is, is my work here at LinkedIn, which is, uh, as you know, uh, deals with the subject of creating economic opportunity for everyone. Awesome. Well, I am curious about the work that you mentioned on approximate inference. Is that uh, is that model specific? Yeah. So, um, approximate inference in graphical models is is this area of machine learning where uh, you know that if you really want to compute a posterior distribution, what we call uh, for a given random variable, given all the information that you know about the system around this random variable. Let's say you have a, a system of uh, you know, 100 random variables and you know a lot about 99 variables, but you, don't, you wanna know what those 99 variables tell you about this one variable, right? How do you compute the distribution over that uh, uh, random variable, right? So for example, you know um, everything about the uh, state of a patient, right? The result of many tests. Uh, how how you can calculate the probability that this patient has a particular disease, for example, right? So we know that uh, in complicated systems, depending on how these variables interact with each other, you, you can easily go into the field of you know such large computations that you cannot really compute this even if you have a, a very large computational resources, and you have to go and um, explore areas of approximations, right? Uh, of this posterior distribution. So uh, basically approximate probabilistic inference uh, is the field of um, trying to come up with the best possible approximations to these very large problems that you cannot solve because they are either too large or simply because um, you don't have the time uh, uh, to wait for, for an answer. So um, anyway, that's uh, that's in general what uh, what this area is. And, and you'll be surprised how quickly you go into these intractable models. For example, you have a um, you have random variables that can take ten values, and you have uh, maybe fifty of those, right? Uh, the number of possible uh, states that the system could be in is already quite large. It approximates, I guess, the, in the number of particles in the in the universe, right? So wow. this is why you need this type of um, uh, approximate algorithms, and uh, um, and they're actually very useful for a lot of the things uh, we do. Is the common theme between the work you've done in healthcare and the work you're doing at LinkedIn, this notion of graphical models? Do you do you use graphical models much at LinkedIn? Thinking in terms of graphical models is, is um, uh, to me, has been a really great way to think in terms of probability, a general way to think in, term, in terms of probability. And if you're in the field of machine learning, I think uh, thinking in terms of probability, it's extremely useful. And um, uh, even though you can do a lot of things, maybe without thinking directly in terms of probabilities, I think uh, for most of the things that I have done in the past, uh, the notion of uh, probability, probability distribution, approximations have played a, a, a very important role. So um, I think of um, graphical models as, a, as an excellent way to think in general about uh, probability distributions. and and useful in you know many areas uh, uh, in the healthcare field for example every time that you need to think about uh, well what is the probability that uh, this particular this particular patient has this disease given that we know the result of this test and this test and this other test uh, you know it is core to everything we do right 
in the same way in um, in a large internet company like LinkedIn, uh, understanding what is the probability that this member is going to really find value in this information that we are providing to him uh, via the application right? uh, is core to a lot of the things we do, right? So we want to, uh, at the end of the day, maximize the value that this uh, member gets from interacting with uh, LinkedIn and uh, encoding this in terms of probabilities, right? Uh, probability that the member is going to uh, engage with this post or the probability that the member is going to uh, invite a colleague to join LinkedIn or the probability that this member is going to maybe disable this notification because this notification wasn't the appropriate one to send is something that we consider every day uh, at my work. So yes, I mean, thinking in terms of probabilities uh, is, is at the core of everything we do. Graphical models provide uh, a language to speaking in terms of probability um, that is very general. And this is why, you know, I, I find it really useful. And uh, I, I was lucky to explore this field back when I was uh, uh, in academia. And, you know, turns out that I'm, I use it every day, basically. It's really interesting. I've done a, a number of interviews on the topic of um, graphical models, and I've tended to think of them in the context of... Uh, either computational graphs or like graph databases, things like that, and and always think of them visually. And it wasn't really until you just uh, until I heard your description that it really clicked clicked for me that the the graph we're really talking about is uh, an application of Bayes rule and conditional probabilities, and that's really what the relationships are between these nodes in the graph. Is that the right way to think about this? Uh, you you, re, you you hit right on target. Basically, uh, approximate inference in graphical models is a way to efficiently apply Bayes rule. That's a that is what uh, this reduces to really. Right? Um, mm. So yeah, uh, for example, algorithms like um, belief propagation, right? Um, mm -hmm. In a graph, right, is a, is an exact exact way to apply Bayes rule, right? Uh, in some cases, you cannot apply the Bayes rule uh, exactly. Right, because um, the computation is too large, mm -hmm. and uh, this um, uh, the belief propagation algorithm becomes intractable. Right, uh, the exact one, and um, approximating what belief propagation should do is is basically core part of um, these algorithms for doing approximate inference in in, in graphical models. So yeah, I think that um, that's another way to put it. Right? So inference uh, equates in these probabilistic systems as applying Bayes rule, and when you cannot apply Bayes rule, you have to go into approximations. Right? So so now there is a, that is not to say there are a lot of there is a large field of machine learning that um, maybe you don't have to think directly in terms of uh, probability, right? And uh, for example, uh, you know. I'll argue that uh, even though it is useful, in many cases, thinking of uh, uh, when you need to use a neural network, let's say, to address a classification task, you may or may not think in terms of probability and will be fine with it, right? Um, but uh, introducing probability in in the thinking, in the reasoning about how machine learning works is is, is super useful. And uh, it's a it's a great tool, right? even if you are using um, you know neural networks or or any other things that uh, on the surface don't require you to think in terms of probability directly. Right? Mm -hmm. 
So, for example, in, in you have a neural network trained to predict. Uh, let, let me use the same example uh, in healthcare. The uh, you want to predict whether the patient is healthy or not. Um, you can use uh, as input the result of all the tests that you apply to this patient, and the output is going to be an activation of this uh, normally referred to as a, as a neuron in the in the in the neural network that tells you whether the patient is sick or is not, right, based on what he has learned from the past. And um, so far, I haven't brought up the term probability, but um, if you start thinking about uh, um, how the activation of the neurons, right, relate to this, how certain the system is that the patient is sick or not, then you can translate that to, to a more probabilistic concept and start doing, you know, additional analysis on, uh, let's say, the, how reliable the neural network is or how how much it captures the true relationship between the inputs and outputs, right? So anyway, that is kind of like my um, summary of why, you know, thinking in terms of probabilities is, to me, is always helpful, even if you are not dealing with them directly, yeah, like in like in some versions of neural networks. Uh, yeah, I'm really glad we went down this path. I don't, you know, it seems so, so obvious in hindsight, but, uh, that way of thinking about graphical models is, is going to be helpful for me, I think. You know, maybe let's jump over to, to LinkedIn and, and what you're up to at LinkedIn. Can you talk a little bit about why AI at LinkedIn? I mean, some of that is going to be, uh, obvious, but maybe give us a lay of the land of how LinkedIn thinks about artificial intelligence and machine learning. So um, basically, in everything you see on the LinkedIn app has, to a large extent, uh, some form of uh, machine learning in the background. Right? Uh, let's let's start from the things that you normally see when you open the LinkedIn app. Uh, let's say the feed. Right? Uh, the first thing you see normally is is the LinkedIn feed, which ranks the conversations or updates or information that in general we believe is the most relevant to you. So um, this, uh, the reason why we rank things in, in that way is because um, of the, um, how you have interacted with the LinkedIn application in the past, right? So we um, try to understand uh, what interests you, what is relevant, right? Uh, you have a limited amount of time to invest uh, on, um, uh, using the LinkedIn app, we want to make sure that that's the most relevant that we can show you. Uh, in the same way, uh, connection recommendations. Right? Who who would you like to connect to? We try to infer from past uh, activities and your past connections. You know who you be interested to to connect with. Uh, follows recommendation. Who who would you like to follow? What topics you like to follow? Uh, how to make messaging interactions simpler? Right? How to um, what to notify you of, right? So we know that uh, notifications, uh, too many notifications could be negative because we don't want to overwhelm anybody uh, by sending too many notifications all the time. But So we want to really, really choose what is the best possible use of your time if we were to send you a, a notification. So um, machine learning plays a role there in in trying to decide what is what are the, what, what notification from all the notifications that we could send you has the highest chance of providing value to you, and even in other areas that are not directly consumer 
or member focus, we use um, uh, artificial intelligence a lot, for example, preventing um, uh, some forms of abuse to, to the site, right? That's, that's another area that uh, um, understanding uh, the patterns in the past that we have seen of abuse, let's say, to the site, I think we can prevent f future uh, problems with it, right? So um, uh, jobs recommendations, right? So how to connect you with the right job, the right company uh, requires of understanding, you know, your skills, uh, how do they how they relate to certain types of jobs? Uh, what is your job title? So what type of jobs probably makes the most sense for us to recommend to you uh, and things like that? Uh, in addition to that, uh, maybe your job requires you to know or to learn certain subject areas. So we can also recommend to you uh, learning courses that you can also find in LinkedIn. Uh, that will maximize the chances of you getting that next job, uh, for example. Um, same in the same way, you know, in our search results, when you search for a particular topic or member or product or company in the app, we use artificial intelligence to show you what are the what are the most likely uh, matches to what you are intending to identify in the app. So, um, you know, I, I could I could talk about uh, all of these subjects for hours, right? Uh, but uh, it's basically everywhere. Yeah, I'm curious. A lot of what you've described sounds common across internet companies and and social types of applications, feeds, recommendations, things like that. I'm curious where. LinkedIn's requirements and use cases might be different from uh, some other companies in, in ways that, that uh, are interesting. There are going to be things that are probably uh, in common with other companies and uh, things that are special to LinkedIn. One of the main things that we truly care at LinkedIn is, is the notion of, uh, you know, are we providing the, the most possible value, right? The highest possible value to the member by showing the member a particular recommendation, for example, right? So we think about uh, this whole uh, interaction with the application in a, in, a, in a holistic way. And I think that's pretty interesting. I, I, I'm not too familiar with uh, other industries or, or uh, companies thinking this holistically, right? So, and uh, what do I mean by that, right? So, for example, recently, uh, or maybe a couple of years ago, uh, not so recently, we... Um, we, we receive a lot of feedback that uh, maybe LinkedIn was sending too much email right, to, to people, right? And, uh, and, and you know, some of this feedback was public and that we have acknowledged this. So what uh, we started thinking, well, you know what, we need to do something about this, right? And uh, uh, why is it that, you know, we're sending so much email? And, and if you think short term, right? Well, you know, the more messages you send, the more email you send in this case, you know, the higher the chances of engagement, right? So if you want to maximize engagement, you know, sure, uh, at least in the short term, send send more email, right? And, uh, well, that is a very, you know, short-sighted strategy, right? So in, in, instead, what if you start thinking about if you want to improve the overall ecosystem of LinkedIn, Right, and at the same time, the the overall value that the member gets from using LinkedIn, uh, then uh, you start thinking much differently, right? And uh, one of the uh, early projects that we did in this area was, uh, well, you know, engagement 
you know, as a proxy for value is, is interesting. But we should also take into account negative signals. Like, for example, is the member disabling or, or, or marking the email as, as spam, for example, right? So, so let's pick one email type and let's try to change the problem from trying to maximize engagement to a constrained optimization problem where we think a little bit more uh, holistically and say, well, let's try to maximize some form of en engagement, which is a proxy to value subject to some constraints on, uh, let's say, uh, negative feedback, like marking the email as spam. And, you know, that turns out, you know, that's that relatively simple optimization problem, you know, only one email type, two utilities, one is related to engagement, one is related to uh, negative feedback, uh, had a huge impact on, on that particular type of notification or email that we were sending, right? And How do you characterize it, that impact? Uh, so the way that we characterize this impact is um, how how many uh, uh, how much negative feedback are we reducing? Right? So how much how much of a reduction of negative feedback we can we can measure? Right? Mm -hmm. How many fewer emails we can send? At what uh, level of engagement? So it turns out that uh, we could reduce uh, the number of emails uh, notifications that we send by uh, a pretty large amount. I think for that initial test that we run, it was uh, at least 40% of email reduction with a equivalent percentage of uh, negative feedback. And the engagement, the proxy to engagement that we were using at the time, which were sessions, right, were almost... Uh, on change, maybe negative 0.5 uh, reduction in session. So that's that's a great trade-off to make, right? So we we provide a much better uh, experience uh, at a very similar level of en engagement, and we actually could measure that there is a reduction in in the negative feedback that we were getting, right? So uh, thinking holistically basically gave us uh, so many more insights into how we can do this. Uh, across LinkedIn, so so we didn't stop here. We said, well, you know, this this is great. So it, it may sound crazy, but what if we do this across all uh, notifications that we are sending? And uh, at the time, we were sending pr the primary form of notification that we were sending were emails. So let's say that we now instead instead of just why, why stop it at one email type? Let's let's across all the possible emails that LinkedIn could send you. What if we apply a similar way of thinking? Right? And uh, then you, you run into uh, scalability problems and uh, um, having to uh, work with an entire uh, uh, set of uh, you know, product managers within the company. And uh, how do you deal with that, right? So, and, and this experience really gave us a lot of insights about uh, how we approach f future problems, right? But what we did basically was... Uh, Let's, let's formulate the problem again as a constraint optimization problem where you are, uh, let's minimize the amount of uh, messages that we send. Let's say that uh, we, we want to really, you know, if we don't have to send any messages and provide the same amount of value to the members, then why not do that, right? So the way that we formulated the problem was, well, let's minimize the number of messages that we send, in, in this case, uh, emails, subject to a maximum no amount of uh, negative feedback that we're willing to tolerate. We want, you know, less than 2% of negative feedback or 0.2% of negative feedback. And um, let's also make sure that there is certain level of engagement. So we don't want to, 
reduce the engagement uh, too much because that's our proxy for for member value, right? So let's let's place a constraint on on the member value that we believe we are providing, right? And since we have uh, maybe 20 different products or 30 different products across LinkedIn that are, are all sending some form of email or notification, let's make sure that we don't decrease the engagement that uh, we are directing to those products uh, more than a percentage, right? And then you see how we can, we, we keep increasing the complexity of the problems and the number of constraints, right? So. This turned out to be a, um, um, a project that we you know, decided to do and uh, which enormously reduced uh, the amount of uh, emails that we sent to, to our members. All the product partners were uh, positive about uh, the impact that this was having um, across the product. And um, basically, it, it addressed this, this very critical problem that we really, really wanted to solve, which is provide better member value while at the same time reducing the amount of notifications that we were sending, right? So I believe that at the time, the reduction of total messages sent uh, to members was uh, close to 65%, close to 50% overall, with a decrease in in, in negative feedback of 65% and uh, less than 1% reduction in sessions overall, right? But, you know, we believe this is the right thing to do and and, uh, we did it, right? Even though... This came at some cost, which is you know one percent reduction in sessions. That uh, in a large company that may be uh, a large cost, but um, it was the right thing to do, and it, it opened the door to a lot of other things. That a lot of our, our future thinking about how to approach these problems. This is a really really interesting story, a great story, and uh, really timely for me. I was just uh, giving a talk earlier this week and talked about how the metric that you choose to optimize around, you know, has a huge impact in the way you can approach a machine learning problem, even if it's fundamentally the same kind of problem, you know, a recommendation problem, you could look at it from the perspective of revenue or profit or a lifetime customer value. And uh, there are all kinds of choices uh, to make there that have different implications on the ultimate performance of your models, but also the, the user experience, the customer experience. Uh, so it's really interesting to hear how you've uh, applied this. Are there other areas outside of uh, this email domain that that you've applied this kind of uh, holistic thinking to? Yeah, so um, we're now using this to other types of notifications as well. But um, I think one one interesting example uh, is also in the area of um, uh, forming connections, right? So um, in LinkedIn, we have this product called PYNK or people you may know. And uh, this product is basically powered by a machine learning algorithm that determines for a particular person uh, what are the the connections that in the past, you know, we used to think about uh, what are the connections that are most likely to uh, respond, yes, I want to connect with you, right? And uh, when you then rethink the problem and and think, well, you know, uh, maybe uh, we should think about the problem in terms of what are the most valuable connections, right? Or what are the connections that uh, will, in the future, you think of value as uh, how much interaction you will have with these connections. Uh, then, you know, you start thinking about uh, different objective functions and different ways to to uh, provide a, a, what we think is a better value to the members, right? So what we started to do was uh, to, instead of creating connections after connections, 
trying to maximize the number of connections that a, a person creates, um, try to maximize the valuable connections or the connections that are that the connections that matter, right? Or that we think that matter, right? So, um, so we reformulated the problem into let's maximize the chances that you're going to really engage with this person if you connect with the person, subject to some constraints on. You know, I I want you to be connected, right? I don't want the members to be severely underconnected because we are too picky about uh, the type of connection we are recommending to this member, right? Mm-hmm. So um, this had a interesting impact on well, you know, the, the new connections that you're making are actually you're actually interacting more with them because of the new this new recommendation algorithm, and uh, it's probably um, of of higher value to you, right? So um, as another um, example where we were thinking about um, maybe the more uh, of the ecosystem value, you know, or, or, or long-term value to the member, right? And um, another example is on the in the area of, um, so for example, on, on the feed, right, which is a core part of LinkedIn, you know, we want to make sure that everybody in the feed feels heard, right? So you, that, you know, when I post something in the feed, I, I want to make sure that uh, people you know, can can see what I posted and um, I get feedback, right? Um, if you want to maximize click-through rate, which is the usual metric that you you will feel first think about, uh, you will normally promote uh, members that are very very popular and get a lot of clicks, right? So, but um, you want to create a, a really a better sense of uh, a community and and people, um, you want people to feel that uh, they are heard, right? You want to also take into account that uh, maybe some members that are um, less uh, uh, active, right, will deserve the chance to to get feedback as well, right? So we want to maximize overall engagement, not just the gain of 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 a few members, right, uh, uh, while uh, other members feel that they are not heard, right? So that's um, that's another um, area. Uh, so what we did is. We basically focus on a group of members that are new sharers or not very common sharers or, or contributors and um, decided to, to make a trade-off basically. We want we want to have uh, this we, we want to have most members receiving feedback as compared to just a few members receiving a lot of feedback. And um, again this uh, this had a very positive effect on the members who contributed and uh, they were not necessarily the most uh, popular members or heavy contributors, but because of the feedback they got, uh, there was a considerable increase in how much these members contribute again and, and share another article or share their views again on the site. And uh, again, this is uh, something that maybe uh, uh, it is obvious once you think about it, but um, it is not how usually most companies start uh, when they want to optimize uh, something like the feed, for example, or connection recommendations. Usually, the tendency is to optimize for the metric that you can see the most now right. and hope that that is the metric that in the long term is going to be the best metric to optimize. Right? And uh, we have realized that that's not the case in many instances. And instead, you need to think a little bit more holistically and come up with a better proxy of what is the the metric that is better for the overall good of the member and 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 the uh, en- engagement overall in the site, 
Now, now this is not to say that we have solved the problem of uh, what is the best long-term metric that you should optimize for. I think that's a that's a really difficult problem, and uh, in many cases uh, you get uh, counterintuitive results. Into um, you know, I want to optimize uh, how much in, uh, daily active users there are in the site in in one year, right? What should I optimize uh, more uh, in the short term in order to get there? And and I think that's a that's a toughest question. That's a tougher question, right? But uh, basically, this is uh, um, reflects our um, idea that you should try to optimize whatever is closer to the long-term metric you want to see change. Uh, as long as you can, you have a way to more or less uh, approximate that metric with something that you can measure uh, in the short term, right? Because uh, you know, if if we wanted to apply this this idea, you know, I, I would like to optimize uh, uh, the feed, let's say, or LinkedIn overall for uh, a metric that says how many how many people in the global workforce are employed and believe that have economic opportunity, right? <laughs> but uh, but what is the is that's my objective function? What it can is, get pretty you know, broad. Yeah, what is the derivative of that with respect to the variables that I can control? <laughs> that is that is uh, that is a problem. So uh, that is. Uh, trying to fill in the intermediate uh, proxy objective functions that will that you think will get you to that overall ideal, right? Is where there is so much interesting work and and uh, mm-hmm. ideas in, in in machine learning that uh, uh you know this is why this is, this is a this is such a broad subject, right? And uh, mm-hmm. but this is more or less how we want to think about it. What what is the true metric that you really want to uh, go towards? Right? So now that you have this experience. Do you find that teams are starting with more holistic models from the beginning of a, a modeling process, like for new features? Or do you find that it, it needs to be more of a crawl, walk, run, and you know they, they should still start simple and evolve and mature over time? Yeah, so I think that uh, definitely uh, I always... Um, um, go for the you know try the simplest thing first, right? And uh, try to understand from the simple approaches first, right? And uh, you know for for a new co- a new company uh, that needs to grow very fast, right? In order to get that uh, uh, engagement going, especially say you, you're starting a a new application for which the um, the social aspect is very important, you know. Perhaps trying to maximize the number of connections as much as possible is the best, right? Work um, on the cake and not the the icing or the cherry. Exactly, right. So now, once you start learning and realizing that, hey, you know, uh, maybe you know our members have a limited amount of time and energy and um, attention, what is the next best thing that we could do to provide that value to them? Right. Uh, then uh, you probably start thinking into more sophisticated way to to optimize uh, for that. Also, you know, at the same time, when you are early, you know, when when a company is an early in the early stages, you probably don't have a very large investment in in, in machine learning. So you, you need to try simple things first, right? Uh, because the ROI is is, is largest, right, uh, at that stage, right? But once you have understood a lot about uh, the members or uh, people who use your, your application, um, it's is really uh, 
it, it really it, it turns into an ethical question, you know, what is the best thing that we could do for our members, given that we have this level of maturity in understanding uh, how to bring value, right? And this is what we have tried to do, right? We, we try to do the best we can, given given all that we have learned throughout the many years um, at LinkedIn. So there are certainly uh, implicit, if not explicit, tones to uh, you know fairness implications uh, of some of the things that you describe, like you know particularly around the the feed and what goes into the feed and that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. I think that's something that uh, we always uh, keep in mind. I think that um, we always try to um, think about um, all of these considerations uh, in terms of fairness. Uh, you know, re- reducing bias and um, and members' privacy, of course, right? That um, go into all, all the things we do. But uh, as long as uh, all of those aspects are satisfied, um, they're thinking about um, how to think holistically to provide the best possible value, right? Uh, to the members is something that um, it's is now reflected in many of the things we do. So. Um, uh, and I guess it helps that uh, my team is responsible for for a lot of the uh, products that I mentioned earlier. So we really try to uh, make sure that um, this this way of thinking permeates across the organization and uh, start at, at that level instead of thinking too narrowly or too greedily in terms of maximizing one particular metric at the expense of other things that. Uh, we may be missing, right? That can be better for the overall ecosystem, right? Mm. So anyway, so that's, that's just wanted to summarize a little bit how, how it is that, that we're thinking about uh, all of these problems at, at a high level and maybe provide a few examples like the email example that where we could touch a little bit at the, at the low level. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm curious as your, your team takes on more of these constraint optimization types of problems, has it changed or to what degree has it changed the the tools that you use, the data pipelines, the modeling process, um, the, you know, the general approach to um, rolling these out? Okay. Yeah, that's a um, good question because um, we had to build, uh, you know, tools for doing this more efficiently, right? And uh, some of the tools, for example, are uh, that we had to build are these large-scale um, constraint optimization solvers, right? That can use can take advantage of uh, some level of distributed processing, right? And um, uh, provide uh, a result to the problem very quickly, right? Because a lot of these problems, really, what, what something that is common about all of these problems is that you're normally um, computing a trade-off across many different objectives. For example, you know, uh, number of negative feedback that you get, number of uh, uh, yeah, yeah, sessions uh, that uh, that we see, uh, perhaps sessions to a particular product and so on, right? Uh, number of connections that you make. So what is common across all of these uh, kind of applications or examples that I've given is that you always end up with a, how do you set the, the right trade-off across all of these possible objectives, right? So in uh, in optimization, I think that's, that's what's normally referred as the Pareto curve, right? What, are, what is the right point in, in the frontier where you want to operate, right? So in, in two dimensions, this, this is just a curve and uh, two variables and, you know, usually an increase in the return that you get in one variable uh, implies that... Uh, 
you will get a, a, a negative impact on the other variable, right? So, you know, and that's a, a you know that's a very large set of combinations of variables that you could you could get, right? In just in, in two dimensions. What if you have three different uh, objectives, or, or or we call it utilities, three different utilities that you need to balance, or four utilities? How do you quickly solve these problems? Now, one thing you could do is that you could solve these problems offline, right? And uh, wait for your cube quadratic programming or linear programming uh, a solver to give you the solution, and then put put the solution into the system, and uh, you know, and measure just to make sure that things are going the way you expect. So that's that's one way to to deal with the problem. And we continue to build uh, ways to scale these constraint optimization problems uh, in our systems. Uh, another way that you could think of uh, of these problems is um, let's say I try to do this online right and this is a, an interesting problem that uh, we're working on uh, in these days let's say we have three utilities right and I want to learn what is the best combination of those utilities that satisfy my my constraints as I serve the traffic so that I can adjust these things as 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 the traffic uh, uh, is is being served right so there are um, working on on online we call it uh, online model selection methods that uh, allow you to well you know a, a member comes we serve this with a particular combination of parameters and we determine you know how well the response to that that combination of parameters was and then the system automatically says you know well you know based on all the information that I have collected in the past about how, how members are interacting given this parameter setting, what is the next best set of parameter settings that I could try to improve my uh, utilities and still satisfy uh, the constraints, right? So there are actually ways that we are trying to adjust or solve this uh, optimization problem where you have a few, uh, we call it hyperparameters, right? Uh, that determine how much importance each of the utilities has, right? And uh, you know the, the the process of trying to adjust this in real time as we see more and more data is one of the areas that I think is uh, is pretty exciting, and uh, we have uh, seen uh, quite a few positive results in, in this direction. Of course, this method may not be able to scale for very large dimensions where you need you probably will need to solve a full offline. Uh, constraint optimization problem, but uh, in many practical situations, being able to do this parameter tuning in in the, an online form seems possible. And I think this is this is one of the areas where I think uh, we are we're very excited to see uh, uh, you know positive results these days. So, so in this context of an online system, you mentioned the dynamic model selection, which makes me think of. You know, not so much updating hyperparameters or parameters in, in real time, but you have offline developed as opposed to one single model, multiple models, and you're trying to fit a given user to a model online and then use that model. But it also it sounds like you're doing a bit of both. I guess I'm trying to get some confirmation. Am I hearing right that there are two different types of things at work as you're trying to, to make the system more dynamic? Yeah, I think the the two examples that you provide are, are very related problems, right? Uh, okay. Uh, I was, uh, uh, and I think one could approach them in a, in a very similar way. I was referring uh, mostly about the problem of um, 
uh, feeding hyperparameters, right? Okay. Which is basically when you have a linear combination of utilities, you have that uh, hyperparameter that that specifies how much of each utility, you know, what is the weight for for each utility, right? And how how you should change the that weight to satisfy your constraints and to at the same time maximize an objective, right? So uh, adjusting those parameters in real time is is what mostly I was referring to. Got it. However, however, that is uh, you are right on target when you when you relate this with uh, with the other problem of uh, trying to decide in real time what is what is the best model variant, right? That you could use instead of having to run different A/B tests separately. You may want to run just one A/B test and let let the A/B test itself uh, auto tune it, right? self tune it, right? mm-hmm. so that you can uh, decide what is the what is the best model variant. And uh, yeah, those those two problems are, are very related, and and we are exploring uh, these directions as well. Just in terms of a time check, uh, we've had a, a really interesting conversation so far. Are there other things that you would add in, in and around this topic of trying to approximate more holistic metrics? in the way we model um no i think uh, i think i uh that reflects at a high level i think uh, what um how we're thinking about it uh there are there are some papers that i can also share with you offline into that go, that go into more details about this uh we have a pretty active uh group of uh scientists engineers uh analysts that publish papers and attend conferences are pretty active in in the research community and uh you know the we have a the data website at linkedin you can search for um a few blog posts and uh articles that we normally publish there to go into a lot more detail into what i just said you know we're pretty active overall in the uh research community and uh you know you know something that i found i guess that i think is also probably interesting to mention here is that uh you know, I spent a lot of times, uh, many years in, in academia. Right? I actually did several postdocs, and and you know, was very interested in in, in core research in this area. But you know, working in industry, you 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 never run out of problems <laughs> that 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 there is no answer for, and uh, or that the answers are just not that great when you try them. Right? Uh, that this creates a constant influx of problems that you wish you had more time to solve that 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 are pretty uh, advanced or, or uh, research uh, driven problems that uh, um you know you could publish and uh, make a lot of impact on so i found the working in industry as a, one of the main sources of interesting problems that i can think of uh you know for publishing or for you know just personal satisfaction of of, of being able to to approach the problem for for a greater good, right? So I think mm. that um, that's that's one message that uh, I, I also wanted to, to share because uh, it took me some time to realize this, but once I realized it, this well, this, this seems so obvious, right? So this is this is such a great place to think of, you know, to, to realize what are the really important problems that that matter, and if you solve them now, it will have a, a big impact not only on 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 just core research, but also on the impact that you can have to. To society in general, right? Right. right. So I think uh, uh, I find it a great place to to do that. And uh, uh, LinkedIn has uh, different initiatives also with um, um, academia. Uh, for example, we, we run this uh, what we call the Economic Graph Research Program, right? Which is uh, another way for us to share. Hey, you know, he, here is 
Here is uh, data that has been, of course, properly uh, you know, de-identified and, and this information has been properly processed to be shared with a um, certain group of people, right? And we work together with um, uh, professors or, or people from academia and, and other parts of uh, outside of LinkedIn to be able to share, hey, you know, this is the data, these are, these are problems we have. What are other problems that you see that for which you can use this data uh, and actually, you know, through research, make a positive impact, right? So just wanted to mention that as well as, uh, as one of the things that uh, I'm pretty excited about, um, what LinkedIn does um, overall. And um, if anybody's interested, I think this is, this is something that you can check out also in our, in our web pages. Okay, great. Well, we will include links to those sites in our show notes, as well as any uh, papers that you want to send over. Uh, but Rome, thank you so much for taking the time. It was really a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you very much. Uh, it's uh, my pleasure. Talk to you later, Sam. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. For more information on Romer or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 149. For the details of our upcoming meetup or the fast AI study group we formed, visit twimlai.com slash meetup. As always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.